In recent years, it's become apparent that the People's Republic of China intends to eat America's lunch. No one is more responsible for revealing that than Matthew Pottinger, a former journalist who went on to earn an honest living serving in the U.S. Marines and in the previous administration as Deputy National Security Advisor. He's currently a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution, and he chairs FDD's China program. China's rulers have an impressively comprehensive strategy for achieving dominance in Asia sooner and globally later. One important component has now been revealed by FDD adjunct fellow Craig Singleton, who previously spent more than a decade serving in a series of sensitive diplomatic and national security roles with the U.S. government. He's published a new report on the modern-day Trojan horses that have gained entry into America's universities, supporting the military-industrial complex of, yes, the People's Republic of China. Craig and Matt are with us today. We're glad you could be with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. You know, let's start with a wide aperture and then narrow it. Matt, you didn't start out as what's called the China hawk. And of course, for years, the kind of conventional wisdom on a bipartisan basis, I think, was that the People's Republic of China, the PRC, was not really communist anymore and was not really hostile to America, that on the contrary, we had a productive partnership, and that a wealthier China would surely be a more moderate and liberal China and a good stakeholder in the American-led rules-based liberal international order. So by way of background, how did you become a heretic, and how come you weren't burned at the stake? (laughs) Right. Cliff, (laughs) thanks, Cliff. It's really good to be with you and and with Craig uh, as well, you know, on on the launch of uh, his excellent report about the Confucius Institutes and 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 the uh, legacy, the, the negative legacy that they they're they're leaving behind. I you know I I was a uh, uh, like you a reporter. I was covering China uh, in the '90s uh, up through uh, the first half of the first decade of the century, uh, writing for Reuters and then for the for the Wall Street Journal. And um, and, and and I think you're right. I, I was uh, among those who thought that um, a, a big bold bet that we should be making is that um, that by embracing China, we might be able to um, uh, lead it to liberalize, particularly after we saw the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, we saw the Eastern Bloc countries um, getting folded into uh, the, the European Union and, and becoming democracies. You know, democracy was really um, uh, on the march. And um, uh, what what we did not uh, understand at the time uh, was how much um, will and and capacity 
still existed within the Chinese Communist Party um, to cling to power and to resist at all costs uh, true liberalization. They opened the door a crack in really profound ways to the, the, uh, the, the, the unleashing market forces, um, but they were determined, uh, including Deng Xiaoping uh, and, and all of his successors, that none of them believed that uh, pluralism in a political sense should ever be allowed in. Uh, parliamentary democracy was totally anathema. Uh, and in fact, what they were doing was trying to strengthen the economy in order to preserve single party, uh, a single party dictatorship. And now here we are, uh, you know, decades later, we see that not, not only did, did they not liberalize, um, uh, but in fact, they're, they're rolling back their economic uh, market forces as well. We've just had a, a, uh, uh, a economic working uh, meeting of, uh, led by Xi Jinping, where he, he assembled all of the uh, most important people in the Communist Party system there. And he, and he basically unveiled uh, last week a stoplight chart system where he says the party is going to determine where people are allowed to invest now based on what's in the interests of the party. So we'll have a, we'll have a red light, a yellow light, green light stop chart. So we're going back to a centralized uh, economic system. So I, I, I came to my senses about all of this um, earlier than some, but not, not earlier than all people like, uh, uh, Jim Mann, who wrote that book, The China Fantasy, was it was incredibly prophetic. Uh, people like Bob Lighthizer, who I worked with in the administration back in the late '90s, predicted uh, what a catastrophe bringing China into the WTO would be for U.S. Uh, prosperity uh, and jobs and national security. We ended up creating a sort of a Frankenstein's monster. But I, I started to catch on in in the early 2000s. Um, when when I started to get the the sense as I was wrapping up my days as a reporter there that this was a this was a regime whose nature was not going to permit uh, them to become more like minded with uh, with the West. Before I go to Craig, I, did how difficult was it for you to persuade people in government of this? I mean, it's one thing. I, I, I think I, I'm guessing it wasn't easy if you were at Reuters and, and thought this this was against the conventional wisdom. Your editors would chafe. Wall Street Journal, perhaps a little easier. But in government, people didn't surely didn't want to believe this. Did you just kind of make the case persuasively, and people came around? I mean, certainly people like H.R. McMaster. He certainly agreed with you on this, and I guess John Bolton did did too. Yeah, yeah. What we I was very fortunate that um, uh, that uh, when I, I was first asked during the transition period after President Trump was elected, but before he'd been nominated, um, I, I, KT McFarland brought me over, sure. um, uh, Mike Flynn as well. They asked me to 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 write a uh, provisional, you know, ten page strategy for 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 China in the region, and I, I was very fortunate that they. Uh, were persuaded by the view that I laid out in that paper, and they asked me to come into the administration and help help President Trump actually um, uh, implement that. And so the, the course of 2017 was a very tough year uh, because we had a lot of inertia in our bureaucracy. There were there were pockets of you know individuals really who understood that our um, you know 25 years of policy had failed. Our engagement pol- policy was a failure. Most of our government did not recognize that and actually wanted to continue moving forward. Yeah. And, and the idea was if we just embrace them a little bit tighter, if we just make China a little bit richer, 
if we just share more of our technology and open our markets a little wider, um, surely they'll come around and see things the way that Americans do. And it was a form of uh, it was a form of hubris. And but you know, I, I'm not. I, I don't think it's we we need to. Uh, bring recriminations about it because, you know, I shared that view 20 years ago. It took some people a longer time to come around to it, but HR McMaster, John Bolton, uh, Robert O'Brien, all of the national security advisors who followed um, were uh, equally uh, fortunately focused on this. Mike Pompeo uh, 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 really came around to a a very clear eyed view and and was an extremely strong leader on these points. So we were lucky, Vice President Pence as well, we had had a a core of people who understood that um, uh, our our policy had failed considerably and we needed to to bring uh, folks around. So we we did it through writing a strategy, which by the way, not all presidencies do. (laughs) I was kind of amazed. I was looking, uh, Jim Mattis talked about the fact that when he got to to defense, the Defense Department, there, you know, for for many key things like North Korea and China, there wasn't really an explicit strategy. We wrote them. We wrote in that first year a national defense strategy uh, that Bridge Colby led, lead pen on. Right. Nadia Shadlow uh, under HR right. McMaster wrote our national security strategy, and I and I wrote the Indo-Pacific strategic framework. All of those were interlocking, mutually uh, supporting strategies that President Trump signed off on in his first year in office. And two things here. One, Craig. One is that that not this is not everybody believes this to this day. There are plenty of people on Wall Street. I don't want to believe this. I think there are people in Treasury, even in the uh, Trump administration, who were not on board with this. But it's not. But but comment on this part if if you agree with me. It's not just that the the Chinese Communist Party, the rulers in Beijing, Xi Jinping, that they don't want to liberalize internally. They also have grand ambitions. And those ambitions are to reestablish a great Chinese empire and to, in time, replace the U.S. So instead of an American-led, rules-based, liberal international order, there would be an illiberal international order with China in particular, the Chinese Communist Party, a leading and making the rules. I think it's become clear, tell me if you think I'm wrong, that that's that's the long-term goal of Xi Jinping. Am I right? What do you think? Uh, no, I agree with Matt. I think there's always been a distinction between what the Chinese say amongst themselves and what they say publicly. And as you dig into the speeches and to the writings of Chinese leaders and the, the real thought leaders of the country for the last 20, 30 years, they haven't been hiding this sort of grand ambition, this, this idea that China needs to be both central and dominant um, that they view regional dominance, regional hegemony in the same context as they would view taking over international organizations and standards. And this reestablishment, I think, of some of the central pillars that many Chinese and many Chinese leaders sort of look back through Chinese history uh, and say, we can recreate that greatness. Um, and I do think that um, what's one unfortunate sort of side effect now that we're seeing and how this is playing out is so many of the ideas that we hear about coming out of China now have really been recycled. Um, and there aren't a lot of new ideas coming out of this sort of uh, closed off structure. Even the, the term common prosperity, which you hear a lot about now, goes back to the eighth plenum in 1953. I mean, these they're going really far back to dig these ideas up and sort of remake them for modern day China. And like I said, they're not hiding 
their intentions so much. It's, it's really incumbent upon us to sort of mobilize and marshal our forces to address it, um, whether it's in the private sector or as this report sort of reveals what we're seeing in academia as well. Uh, Matt, I think you might have wanted to get back in on this, but let me tee it up with this way, that clearly as recently as May of 2019, Biden, Joseph Biden was not on board with any of this. I remember, you, you remember the quote during the campaign, he said, quote, China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. I mean, you know, they're not bad folks, folks. But guess what? They're not competition for us. Now, that was wrong. And But two years later, he said the following, the Chinese are eating our lunch. They're eating our lunch economically. They're investing hundreds of billions of dollars in research and development. I'll let you take it from there, Matt. Yeah, you're, well, you're making me hungry for, uh, for a meal <laughs> now, but it's uh, a little the, low man would be nice. Yeah, it, I, I think one, one of the remarkable things is, is that even with our political polarization right now, this is one area where, uh, fortunately, uh, for our national security, uh, we're seeing uh, leaders step up on, on both sides of the aisle, and at least to recognize that, uh, as President Biden more recently said, Said, you know, they, they are eating our lunch. We've allowed them to. We've not been willing for far too long, really until President Trump's administration, to, to impose costs on the People's Republic of China for the, for the, the things that it's doing that are clearly uh, detrimental to our national interest and our prosperity. So, so President Biden's team uh, really has run with, uh, you know, in the, very much in the same trajectory um, uh, picking up where the Trump administration left off and, uh, and, and certainly hope that continues. I hope they acquire an appetite to uh, continue imposing costs. A few good developments this week with some new companies that were added to the Treasury Department blacklist and uh, new, new Ch- Chinese companies are being added to the uh, Commerce Department's export control entity list. So, so there is some appetite there, and I hope that President Biden signs imminently the uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Act, which is an incredible piece of legislation yes. that uh, uh, Senator Rubio and, uh, but, but also uh, Representative McGovern on on the, the House side uh, both showed uh, leadership to get passed. And, and I want to stress this point because we talk about our interests, but there are also our values, which I think we believe are universal values. Um, and what I'm talking about, obviously, is the persecution to the point of genocide, according to the U.S. government and the British government, of the Uyghurs. Uh, in Xinjiang, which I would say is a, um, a Turkic Muslim land that's part of the Chinese empire, um, but not really part of China. Um, also, the threats to Taiwan, uh, which is considered a rogue province, so it's never been under Chinese communist control and which is threatened increasingly daily. Uh, the stripping of rights uh, and freedoms from Hong Kong, despite the fact that under a treaty, treaties are the foundation of international law, China had promised when Britain gave up Hong Kong, don't worry, uh, we'll have two systems that, that Hong Kong will not be disturbed, and they have been. Craig, I, before we, I'm, I'm, I'm inching towards your <laughs> towards your report <laughs> a little by little, um, but there are two terms that I think we need to to address. I just want you to define them. Start with this one, so people understand military civil. Fusion, MCF, what does that mean? No, absolutely. Uh, so military civil fusion, you know, leveraging China's growing economic, technological, and military capabilities. You know, the Chinese Communist Party is expanding its role and its influence internationally. And so 
Military Civil Fusion, or MCF, is it plays a central role in this campaign. And at its core, it's a national strategy that's aimed at acquiring the world's cutting-edge technologies, including through theft, to achieve Chinese military dominance. And so it entails the fusion of military, civilian, and commercial investments and actors and positioning to increase China's comprehensive national power. And so it, it leverages all of China's international ties and its entities, both private and state-owned, to advance China's interests. Okay, and here's the second term you used in your report, China's military academic complex. Now, this opens the door. Yeah, no, this is sort of a term that we coined, actually, at FDB okay. as we were preparing the report. You know, everyone talks about the military-industrial complex and the role that companies play, both, I mean, even within our, our system and structure, to advancing our military capabilities and our intelligence apparatus. But what the Chinese have really done is really tapped into their civilian university system and structure to do that. And uh, they've made no secret of their desire to harness the power of their system and our system to achieve this modernization. It's very well documented in the speeches that we see from Chinese leadership. They maintain, for example, programs, grant programs to support promising STEM students from about 90 Chinese schools to pursue degrees here in the United States, after which time they are expected, as we reviewed the grant applications, to go back to return to China to provide the technology and talent Beijing needs to compete with the United States. Also present at a lot of these universities that we uncovered in our report and are Chinese defense laboratories. So literally PLA laboratories on campus overseen by the PLA, staffed by Chinese professors and students at some of these schools that are directly feeding into classified military projects. And so in a, in a, in a way, they've really been able to weaponize higher education. So I really I wanted to point out that uh, two of our colleagues, Emily de la Bruyere and Nathan Pekarsik at FDD, recently published a report um, on another strand in this strategy, the PRC's systemic, systematic campaigns to influence American state and local governments, taking advantage of governors and mayors who you know, prioritize trade and investment and job creation, and the Chinese can help them do it. Wow, that's great, but they often have little concern for, in many cases, little understanding of national uh, security. Um, and when they published that, you were, you were doing your research on the influence of and the agents of Chinese Communist Party on American campuses. And that brings us to the Confucius Institutes. And you should explain what the Confucius Institutes are and what, they, what they've done. Sure. So Confucius Institutes are Chinese government-sponsored organizations that provide Chinese language and cultural programming at the primary, secondary, and university levels around the world. Uh, they sort of serve as soft power and some say sharp power platforms um, that they propagate Beijing's preferred political narratives. Um, they deepen China's subnational influence uh, at the state and the local level. The FBI is referred to them as in, in Confucius Institutes play a key role in uh, encouraging censorship or restricting academic freedom on college campuses. What this report mm. sort of reveals a little bit is that they also advance facets of that military civil fusion strategy. Um, and that while dozens of America's top research schools have closed their Confucius Institutes in the last few years, a lot of them, dozens, maintained and in some cases expanded the academic and research partnerships that they had going 
with Chinese schools that supported the Confucius Institutes. And in most of these cases, the Chinese universities in question directly enable China's military industrial complex, its nuclear weapons program, and its cyber espionage platforms. So just so we understand, to what extent would you say the Chinese Communist Party controls and, and even funds these Confucius Institutes? Oh, it's pretty serious. And so one of the things that we did was we uh, leveraged lawfare a little bit and did a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests and really started to dig into the literature and to understand what, what type of contracts does a U.S. university sign when they create a Confucius Institute. They sign one with the Chinese Communist Party, and it sort of outlines the rules of the road for the Confucius Institute. It gives the Chinese Communist Party broad control over Confucius Institute operations, curricula, the manner of instruction, down to the volunteers that can be hired to support a Confucius Institute. Uh, and in exchange, U.S. schools receive typically hundreds of thousands, if not in the case of some schools like Stanford, millions of dollars to support the Confucius Institutes. But at the same time, when they create that Confucius Institute, U.S. universities sign separate contracts with a Chinese university selected by the Chinese government to support the Confucius Institute's programming and training. And even when you close a Confucius Institute, that second contract is still valid and persists for years. And so the closure of these Confucius Institutes doesn't necessarily degrade Chinese malign influence on college campuses because the contracts allow it to persist afterwards. And just so I understand, the reason that quite a few Confucius Institutes um, were closed down was because of the bad publicity, that sort of thing? Or was it more that... Um, or, or there are different reasons, because as you say, although they got, they, there are fewer Confucius institutes, main, the Chinese are maintaining their presence and their influence on the campuses. I wish it was for all the reasons you mentioned there. Okay. So at their height, we had 113 of these things. We're down to about 34. Um, but Confucius Institute closures really only began in earnest after Congress passed legislation barring U.S. universities that hosts them from receiving certain types of funding from the Defense Department. Mm. And so as a result of that, uh, we saw about 15 closures in rapid succession. Only four of the closures occurred because schools said we have a U.S. national security issue here. Most never issued a press release or any statement whatsoever about why the Confucius Institute closed. And part of that is because as we dug into the contracts, these contracts are very tight. They're very binding. There's actually no way to terminate them for typically within the five-year window. And if a school comes out and says something, a U.S. school comes out and says something negative about their Chinese university partner or the Chinese Communist Party, they're actually financially liable for damages as determined by the Chinese Communist Party. So there's an incentive for these schools to Sometimes, in some cases that we reviewed, just deactivate the Confucius Institute website one day and kind of call it quits, simply to sort of prevent that blowback. So maybe talk about some of the universities that are most in bed with the Chinese, whether they want to be or they can't get out. And and you've had at least one success in terms of getting a university to understand and begin to break off its ties. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when we're talking about these partnerships, like what are we talking about? So Stanford and the University of Washington, they have agreements with Peking University, and that's a Chinese university that directly supports China's 
growing nuclear weapons program. Arizona State and the University of Utah, well, they work with Sichuan University, and that's a, they actually build Chinese nuclear warheads. Uh, Sichuan mm. is the, one of the few schools mentioned in our report that's been, um, it's on the receiving end of export restrictions by the Commerce Department that Matt mentioned earlier, uh, preventing it from buying sensitive technology. Uh, the Texas A&M University, my alma mater, they have a partnership agreement with uh, Ocean University, which helps build Chinese nuclear submarines. The worst part of all of this, though, is that all the information that we're talking about here is on the Internet. So in other words, the only thing that sort of prevented these U.S. universities from partnering with these problematic Chinese schools was a Google search. I will say that We've reached out to a number of the schools in our report, both pre-publication and post-publication, primarily to just to inform them and say, you may have not known any of this information before. Um, and in the case, at least one, Purdue, uh, led by Mitch McDaniels, uh, Mitch Daniels, yeah. rather, they took some really proactive steps. They immediately said we had no idea uh, about this information. They canceled partnerships with some of the problematic Chinese universities that we helped identify. And we're hoping to continue to work with them to help them devise a framework that will allow them to appropriately assess the risk of different types of foreign partnerships. Um, Matt, let me just go to you on this, this, this idea of doing due diligence and the idea that there are certain universities that are problematic and certain companies that uh, it's dangerous to get into bed with. Is it actually possible to do that? In other words, we're talking about a, if the Chinese Communist Party wants a, a Chinese-based business to do its bidding. It, it's not like, you know, Google can say, sorry, we're not working for the CIA or the Defense Department, uh, you know, go pound sand. They have, to, they have to do that. Anything that the Chinese Communist Party wants a Chinese firm or a Chinese university to do, they must do. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, no, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, this goes to the nature of the Chinese system, particularly under uh, the current leadership with, with the uh, push behind this military civil fusion campaign that Craig uh, just described so well. You, it, it's not necessarily a question of the specific partner you're dealing with, although Craig has, has shown how many of the, it's not a coincidence that it's, it's really many of China's top military research institutions that are the ones that are rushing to partner with, uh, uh, you know, uh, Purdue or with Stanford University or, or MIT for that matter, yeah. which we can talk about in a minute. Um, but the, it's the nature of an autocratic system that's really, you know, as, as, uh, a, a, uh, as someone put it recently, it's only as ethical and trustworthy as its rulers. Right. And th those rulers, through uh, the laws that they've passed under this military civil fusion uh, concept, include things like the, the 2017 Chinese National Intelligence Law, which requires any Chinese institution uh, to share information with the government on demand and, and then to, to keep that fact secret. So by law, if you're, if you're an American university and you're partnered with a bunch of Chinese scientists, and those Chinese scientists may be uh, brilliant and ethical and good people, they are required by law to share everything that they learn with the military and to keep secret that fact, uh, uh, in, which is punishable by law if they don't. So um, MIT, I saw just last uh, week, there was a uh, op-ed by a woman named Michelle Bethel, 
who resigned from the uh, McGovern uh, Brain Institute at MIT in basically saying that that um, there's no way to ensure that the research that they're doing and that the partners that they're partnering with in China are not working to aid the Chinese military. Um, and I, I think she's absolutely right about that. In fact, I actually looked up the, uh, the uh, institute that MIT's McGovern uh, Institute is uh, partnered with. It's called the Shenzhen Institute of Advanced Technology. And I found that they are a military affiliated, they run it, they run a military civil fusion center where they're helping the Chinese military with biotech and brain and other, uh, 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 other, uh, other dual use technologies. Uh, and it's right there. If you read Chinese, you can find the fact that <laughs> I don't think MIT is even aware or, or did the work to find out whether the partner institution in this case was, was tied in deeply with the military, but it is. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the quality of, I think that, I think that American research institutes are, are not, you can do the, 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 this kind of scrub. I don't, I just don't think they're doing it. They're not hiring people like Craig or, you know, I mean, not hiring, but just asking Craig uh, and, and others to, to kind of look into uh, these partnerships and, and learn more about the uh, nature of who they're really partnering with. And, and this is a bit of a digression, but I kind of can't resist um, because people like Anthony Fauci, when he's working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, and actually getting American funds there to support research there, I think, um, including on uh, gain of function research, uh, he may not realize that I'm not giving you a conspiracy theory about what they were doing there, but I'm also saying there was no way the scientists who he was having toasts with when he visited, were saying to the People's Liberation Army, look, this is scientific and medical work, and you know, you're not welcome here. That was not happening. That's not, it was not happening. And in, in that specific uh, example that you give, this is an interesting one, because just yesterday I read that the Commerce Department is going to uh, place the Academy of Military Medical Sciences, which is the Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, Medical uh, uh, Research Institute, one of them. The, the U.S. Commerce Department is going to place AMMS, uh, this academy, on their export control list. Now, the Academy of Military Medical Sciences is a partner institution with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which U.S. taxpayers through the NIH have been funding. And we also know that the Academy of Military Medical Sciences has been doing experiments with humanized mice using techniques they learned from the United States uh, that for, to via probably via the Wuhan Institute of Virology to um, to to experiment with coronaviruses by running them through mouse models where those mice have been given human attributes uh, ACE2 receptors in their lungs. So in fact, we we're now belatedly banning the military side of it without recognizing that those the nominally civilian institution that we're continuing to partner with in this case the Wuhan Institute of Virology is is tied at the hip to the Academy of Military Medical Sciences. They, they've published, it's not secret, they've published reports together. Their scientists have collaborated on coronavirus research that we've seen in peer-reviewed journals. Um, it's just that we've, we've refused to connect these dots when, when they're, they're right there uh, asking to be connected. 
And I would uh, say on the university side too, Matt, U.S. universities, they're not required to coordinate any of these academic partnerships with federal local officials. They're not required to do any due diligence on foreign partners. They're actually under no legal or regulatory obligation to sever ties to Chinese universities that are supporting China's military, including when they're on the entity list or the military end user list. So there's this gaping transparency and regulatory gap here that I think more and more the conversation is going to say, all right, we have to have some common sense guardrails. In all, at least uh, there are about a hundred or so Chinese universities that have been directly tapped by the Chinese Communist Party to support military civil fusion, at least that we know about. That's only of about 3,000 Chinese universities. So 3%. You could sit there and say, well, there's plenty of opportunity for academic exchange between U.S. and the U.S. and China, but maybe we should take a closer look at these hundred or so schools that are doing all the things you sort of just described. Sort of common sense. I just got to repeat the phrase Matt used so people dwell on it for a second. Humanize mice. Dr. Frankenstein, call your office. I mean, that's a little bit, a little bit, a little bit scary. We, 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 we taught the Wuhan Institute of Virology how to create those uh, models, how to, how to create uh, humanized mice, uh, and then uh, how, how to run viruses through them to see uh, how those viruses adapt. And um, uh, so, I, I mean, to Craig's point, I, it's, it, it, these, these are what these universities in the United States are doing is not illegal, but I think many of us, myself at least, were, were naive to believe that our top research institutes would be ethical enough to do basic due diligence in who they're partnering with and the nature of the system they're partnering with, because it's the same decision makers uh, who are advancing their military and who are uh, creating the most elaborate uh, totalitarian repression system. I mean, this goes beyond what George Orwell uh, dreamt up. Um, And uh, many of these institutions, these partner institutions in China are deeply involved in building, for example, uh, the facial recognition uh, systems that are used to to distinguish between ethnic minorities so that those ethnic minorities can be um, uh, put under an apartheid system or into concentration camps, which is happening uh, uh, by the hundreds of thousands as we speak. Uh, They're taking, uh, without permission, the genetic sequences of ethnic minorities uh, and and trying to uh, advance, you know, a a lot of other pretty scary stuff. So uh, I I thought that we could have left it to American institutions to, to uh, do the right thing. Uh, But I I think that there's going to have to be uh, guardrails as, as Craig put it uh, in the form of executive orders and probably laws to rein in some of the collaboration that's taking place between, between the two sides. We're running a little bit low on time here, but maybe just give a quick clear-cut case in which Beijing exploited uh, an academic or research partnership to steal military secrets or other really sensitive intellectual property. Yeah. So, I mean, just last year, uh, a Chinese professor, Bo Mao, he was charged with lying to the FBI about his role in a Huawei-directed scheme that was intended to steal proprietary information uh, from a U.S.-based semiconductor company. And as we know, I think the Washington Post this week had a great story about how Huawei actually supports and enables not only the activities that Matt was describing against Uyghur Muslims, but also China's military and supporting those activities. Well, in that case, um, at the time of his arrest, 
Mao was a visiting scholar at the University of Texas at Arlington, one of the nation's premier research institutes. Uh, when he was not working alongside UT researchers on a grant paid for by Huawei, you know, he was busy actually clandestinely downloading gigabytes of data from the university servers to pass along to both Huawei as well as his university employer, Xiamen University, uh, back in China. Um, after he was arrested, he eventually pled guilty to federal charges. He was deported back to China. Uh, and that's just one of the cases that's sort of kind of bubbling to the surface as we investigate this. But I think the bigger point here is not all of these things, not all of this activity has to be a crime per se. They don't have to steal or uh, commit a crime necessarily on U.S. soil to advance in China's military industrial complex and their activities. Sometimes just being able to take advantage of one of these academic partnership agreements that allow Chinese STEM students to come over, sit in a place like Stanford or University of Washington, learning from the best instructors in the world on physics with the expectation that they'll just take that knowledge and go back and work at a lot of the defense labs and the programs that we've sort of all talked about here. It can be very passive. And that is not necessarily a law enforcement challenge. It's sort of a regulatory challenge for us. And it sort of creates a moral imperative in our broader research enterprise to say, are we looking at this the right way? And do we sort of have to revive existing or revise rather existing concepts of research integrity to ensure consistency with democratic values as we sort of go forward here? When we talk about intellectual property theft, Matt, I, I just give 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 folks uh, an understanding of the of the extent to which we're talking about. This is not petty theft. This is not a little burglary. Independent studies that were done came out with you know pretty gargantuan uh, figures. What we did was we looked at it afresh uh, in 2017 when Bob Lighthizer was the U.S. Trade Rep, and I, I worked closely with his team to examine uh, both the classified record as well as uh, uh, cases that, that we knew about in the, in the public realm uh, and found that we're, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, that we're hemorrhaging in, in sweat equity, right? This is, mm. uh, this is what we do well, what our system permits us to do well, which is to innovate. And um, we were losing the fruits of that innovation uh, right out of the starting gate uh, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, in that value, uh, it, uh, where China was using all of the levers of its power, uh, whether it was through espionage, through cyber and human means uh, to part companies and inventors uh, from their intellectual property, or uh, the Chinese government would uh, require what they call uh, technology transfer as a prerequisite to gaining an admission into the Chinese market to try to sell your wares in the Chinese market. So you, you, you come to the Chinese market selling something that only you have invented, but you have to transfer that to a Chinese state-owned entity. And so you're given a few years to really make any gains in that market before the Chinese entity uh, has caught up uh, to you using your technology. So those forced technology transfers were something that we were uh, seeking to address when we uh, asked President Trump to, to uh, impose tariffs as one of the remedies uh, to punish those companies that were benefiting from our stolen IP. And we'll spend the last few minutes on recommendations and policy changes. One, before I go to Craig, but Matt, um, would it be a good idea for the U.S. to, to join the, uh, the, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, the TPP, the trade agreement? from which the U.S. withdrew, uh, I think it was four years ago, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a believer that we need to up our game in trade. Uh, but there are more than one way to, there's more than one way to skin that cat. You don't have to enter into a multilateral, um, uh, uh, trade agreement, which, um, you know, understandably, I think Americans are suspicious of the, these big multilateral trade, uh, deals following, uh, everything that we promised would would come to the United States by bringing China into the World Trade Organization. Uh, the benefits have been very few, <laughs> except for, for China in bringing them in. And so I think that there is a there, there are some things that we can do multilaterally. There are others that we can do just through a very aggressive uh, uh, bilateral trade deals with uh, many of those same countries that are part of the the, the, what was called the TPP. Look, the TPP loses its its uh, geostrategic value if China is allowed to enter it. Oh right? yes, oh, no, and, I'm saying that. Yeah, and I think that there's. Uh, I think that China would find a way to game itself in, and then to just violate all the rules, and then you don't really have any recourse because you're trapped in a multilateral arbitration uh, uh, sort of regime. If you're, if you're, if your deals are all bilateral, mm, you can mm. actually enforce, uh, any remedies you like. And let's face it, everyone wants a free trade agreement with the United States. Cause we're still, we still are such a, a massive market. So, um, I, I hope that the U S trade reps office, uh, finds ways to, to get creative and the commerce department and others to, uh, to actually expand our trade links to the Indo-Pacific region. It doesn't necessarily have to be to the TPP though. Great. People need to read your report, which is on our website, for all the recommendations that you have and that we're urging on Congress and the administration on a bipartisan basis, but maybe just tick off one or two important ones. I think one of the biggest ones is actually just political pressure. If legislators and people on our call and others reach out to legislators and start to create pressure on these universities, we've seen these universities reassess the the benefits and the risks of maintaining these Chinese academic partnerships. We're working with a few folks on the Hill now to sort of kind of create that pressure campaign, but we think that that's sort of a a big bang for the buck that doesn't require necessarily new legislation. We'd also say it should, all of the Confucius Institute contracts, all these academic and research partnerships should be completely public. Universities should be required to just publish them so that we all have a sense of actually what's going on. Um, Universities should have to have stronger disclosure requirements about how much money they've received from both the Chinese government and Chinese entities. I think for all of us who are either in college or have kids in college or grandkids in college, they can, a university will track you down to the cent for every cent you owe them for a book that was one day late to the library. Why can't they document to the cent how much money they're getting from the Chinese Communist Party or from other foreign countries? One of the other big things that we think is just really important here is that we don't need to have Confucius Institutes. Taiwan has an amazing program where they send over qualified Chinese language students to the United mm-hmm. States to teach Chinese students Mandarin, which is just so critically important uh, to build up those people-to-people ties and to support um, the gov- the democratically elected government in Taiwan. And so if we sit there and say, well, we're, we're not beholden to the system that the Chinese have created, there are, there are these other alternatives. We really do need to, though, I think, better educate both the American population as well as universities about how China has weaponized its civilian university system. Part of that is going to require, uh, I think, probably a public list from the Department of Defense that sort of outlines out there in the open, these are Chinese schools that are problematic. These are Chinese schools that are supporting the military. And universities are really going to have to do a gut check to say, 
is that really consistent with our values and do we really want to partner with them? And I don't think the Chinese Communist Party is letting us have any Washington and Jefferson Institutes at Chinese universities at at, at present, are they? Yeah. Well, I mean, like once again, like universities, U.S. universities that want to open satellite campuses over there, to Matt's point, are required to sign lots of different forms and to agree and abide by Chinese law in China. And so once again, I just do think that universities have an ethical and a moral imperative here to just sort of rethink uh, that broader research and academic enterprise and what's consistent with our values. Matt, any last words on for this podcast for today? Well, you we'll know, come it, back to it's funny. Here. You mentioned that we're not allowed to open uh, institutes there. Actually, U.S. taxpayers did fund uh, years ago a number of American centers, which were libraries with, with American books uh, at a handful of uh, Chinese universities. The Chinese government has uh, 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 c- cut those off. And in fact, our ambassador to China uh, was not permitted to visit uh, U.S. government-funded libraries that we'd set up on Chinese campuses. They would, wouldn't let us uh, uh, get get near our own libraries. So uh, we're in a different era. We're, we're in the um, uh, we're, we're in the Xi Jinping era, uh, and we've gone back back in time uh, to the to the pre-Deng era, uh, unfortunately. All right, I'm going to end with this this last thought, this last editorial and policy thought, which is if we do not want to see the People's Republic of China under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party as the global hegemon, there are things we have to do. We have to have by by far the strongest military in the world, unquestionably. I think we also have to have uh, the strongest economy in the world by far. We People have to want to be involved with us. And I think, uh, thirdly, in terms of advanced technologies, artificial intelligence, all of that, we also have to be determined to lead the pact on all of that. I think there's, there's, there's no other way, way around it. For now, thank you, Craig. Thank you, Matt. You're both doing amazing work. We're so proud to be affiliated and working with you um, at FDD. And I'm great to talk to you on this, uh, on, on this podcast. And hope to do it again soon. And thanks to all of you who are listening. We're glad you're with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.